Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Big Footy Podcast, Talks Women's Footy. And I have here tonight, yet again, a man who we have already talked to this year about women's footy, but we thought we'd get him in for a bit of an update. Uh, You'll know him as Crowded House on Big Footy. Uh, And to others, he's Peter Holden from girlsplayfooty.com. Peter, welcome. Wookie, thank you very much. Great to be here. And uh, it says I'm becoming a semi-regular. Should I start sending in invoices now? (laughs) Uh, no, no, uh, none of none of us are paid for comment. Uh, Alan Jones is uh, not lo- alive and well on Big Footy, um, but you know, is this, is this where I need to be a lawsy and drop a Valvoline? <laughs> I was about you know to say I mean? Valvoline. You know what I mean? You know. <laughs> anyway, um, so there, there have been some developments in women's footy. No, no, you know, we still have no concrete details, uh, much to the frustration of many people. Uh, who are eagerly awaiting, not least women that are coming from overseas to want to be involved. And and so I want to begin by drawing your attention to uh, an article by Sam Lane in The Age a couple of weeks ago, Peter, which I'm sure you're familiar with, where she basically says that the budget for the clubs is projected to be about $500,000, and about 100000 of that is supposed to be player wages. Um, I know girlsplayfooty.com had a bit to say about this, um, what's your views on that? Yeah, there's obviously been quite a few comments from us. Um, I think I put out an article beforehand. Matt Marsden responded to that. And, of course, uh, the most famous one, uh, Jessica Ruchner from WA, uh, wrote from a player's perspective what she thinks. Now, I should uh, emphasize it's not every player that she's speaking on behalf. She's just speaking on behalf of herself. Many in the women's footy community all have different views. Uh, but hers are more widely known because they appeared on uh, page 80 of Saturday's Herald Sun in a double-page spread. So that's how much uh, credence her opinion was given and um, when you look at the hundred thousand dollars you think oh you know that could cover that could cover you know 25 girls but then remember within that article they're suggesting that a couple of marquee players will get twenty thousand dollars there'll be few on a bit less and then they're suggesting the rest get costs covered so there's going to be there's going to be a heck of an imbalance it's it does it's i don't see how they can do a draft of any kind Unless it's like a marquee draft, like where 20 or 30 players go into a marquee draft and the rest are just locals pulled into the side. I don't see how they can do a proper draft and, and have that, only $100,000 to offer. Uh, that's what I'm hearing. I'm, uh, the method that I'm hearing what they're looking at is there'll be uh, round one, there will be a draft. Uh, out of that draft, there might be a dozen or so players drafted, so two or three will go to each of the clubs and will move interstate, uh, be paid the top dollar. They're suggesting that they'll also try and get a job with them. Like Daisy Pierce has got a job now at, at Melbourne off the field. They're suggesting that some of the other girls will end up getting an admin job or something like that at those clubs and be full-time ambassadors. Then in WA, Queensland, SA, New South Wales, the rest of the list we made up from what's remaining from their state academy. In Victoria, they reckon there'll be a mini-draft for the four clubs that get licences, and they'll split up the talent between those four clubs. The, the 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 issue with jobs, and I've said this in Big Footy's thread in the industry forum on this, the issue with players being offered jobs uh, and having a salary cap is, is going to be a little bit ludicrous, I think. Uh, we've seen this abused in the, in the men's series before with uh, mm-hmm. Callum Ward's dad uh, at GWS, and, and just you start offering players a job at the club or with club sponsors, and that's where the salary cap tends to... You know, you, you can throw equalisation out the window from day one in this. 
Well, well, there's even more. Um, if you look at it back to the Carmichael Hunt days, I mean, Carmichael Hunt was paid a certain salary as a player. And then there's what they call the AFL... It was something like an AFL discretionary fund for marketing purposes. Mm. And he was paid extra on top of that. So it was Israel Folau. And I've got a feeling this is what might be happening here, where it's a case of, you know, maybe, let's say, for example, Chelsea Randall from WA. She might be selected to play for, let's say, the West Coast Eagles of the WA side. They'll say, okay, you'll be the marquee player, 20 grand, and you will get part of this AFL marketing budget, you will also be a full-time ambassador running around the place promoting women's football and youth girls' football. So what would you expect realistically for uh, a player to be paid in their, you know, a first-year player in the first year of a competition like this to be paid to be realistic? I I would suggest, uh, considering that the time... It all comes down to the time that they've got to spend. I think somewhere maybe in the vicinity of $1,000 a game and looking at um, giving them a budget of $7,000 a year if they're playing seven matches might be fair. $7,000 would put them on par with um, the bottom contracts of the Women's Big Bash League cricket. Um, They've got floating between $7,000 to $10,000 for women to participate in that competition. But it all comes down to time. I mean, I know that Jessica Wuchner's point about the article that um, about guys with beer guts uh, getting a few hundred bucks to kick a footy on the weekend in suburban football. Uh, and someone's been saying, oh, yeah, but the men are more talented, you know, and they, and they try as hard as you. But you've got to remember the guys that, for example, play suburban football are only required to training two times a week, maybe three times, and only then it's only for a couple of hours. So the actual time that's required and the interruption to their life is less. Women being in an AFL environment, this is going to be the question. How long do they want them? This season's running, let's say, February to April. The draft they're planning on happens in November. Does this mean the AFL clubs expect the women to be at their clubs from November through to February doing a preseason? And if it's two or three days a week, is it like how the men's AFL is? where you don't pop in for two or three hours, you're there all day. If you're not on the training track, you're doing theory. Uh, You're working on your development. And in some cases, they also have, as part of their contractual obligations, they also have to do essentially community work, go out there and host clinics and get out there and promote the brand of the club. So this is what it all comes back to, not just match fees. How much time are they required to be at the club before the season and during the season? I can't see them being full-time and professional on 100 grand for a team it just there's no there's no way that's possible not realistically absolutely not absolutely but but the question is um the days that they do have even if they do only have them one let's say they only had them two days a week for example are they there only for a couple of hours or are they there all day and if they're there for a couple of hours only do they have to be there during the day to fit in with the men's program or would they be there at night because you've got to remember the women who also have to have a job to build around this, they've got to try and plan out their life and wonder if the current employment they've got is going to be flexible enough that they can take this time off to go for the league. So, I mean, you know about the BBL teams and everything. They're, they're being paid, what, $1,000 a game, right? Um, it, it's not. It, it'd actually be less than that. I think they played something in the equivalent of, remembering off the top of my head, I think they played like a... 15, 16 game feature. I know the clubs virtually played each other twice, but what happened there was um, it, it was just smart timing. The league ran from about December through to January. Most of the matches were conducted over weekends, a few Fridays games, and you'd play two or three games a weekend. And sometimes you'd have 
example, Melbourne Renegades would take on Sydney Thunder, but they wouldn't play in Melbourne Sydney. There'd be four teams in Hobart for that weekend or playing a bunch of games. Now, the timing of that season happens to work out well because for either girls that are uni students or for those that um, are teachers, nurses, etc., you, you, um, you could plan your four to six weeks annual leave around that time. So you could take your leave off during Christmas, participate in that competition. Once it's over, back to work you go mid to end of January. Um, the problem with the football season is it's, it's, it's going to go from February through to April. And again, you play on weekends, but it's what commitment that club requires you to do during the week. It's something we don't know yet. Mm, Well, we don't know a lot of things about this at all. We don't know how the draft is going to work. We don't know what teams are involved. Clubs are still waiting Uh, for tender processes to uh, be... And and here's the the greatest curveball of all. Um, From seasons one, two, three, say early onwards, a shorter season... Are you contracted with that club from, say, November when you've been drafted until April only? Or are you part-time but contracted through the year? And if you are, depending on those contracts, where does maternity leave come in? It's, it's, it's crazy to say, but, of course, maternity leave, you don't even think about it with male footballers. The worst-case scenario is they might take a game off because on that day their partner might give birth. We've got to think about in a female context, an unexpected pregnancy comes along, and the and you know the female football says, "Well, actually, I'd I'd like to have a baby." Um, where does maternity leave all wrap into this? You're right. Uh, pregnancy is something that they haven't had to deal with before, and it is an issue that they're going to have to discover. Well, negotiate when they uh, if they do a female CBA. I know the players' association uh, wants to do uh, wants to negotiate that CBA as well for the women. I'm just um... and, and and another peculiar part is I mean and I don't know I, I haven't really delved into Australian workplace law to actually look at the scenario, but let's say for example um, the Bulldogs have a female football team and a male football team. Let's just say that hey, just by luck, one male football and one female football happen to fall in love, and all of a sudden you know draft trade time comes along and one of them gets sent interstate. What you know is there? Anything there that, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know if there's any workplace laws or anything like that, it would contravene if you're sending one partner of a couple away. And the same deal is, as we know within the female football community, there's a number of same-sex relationships as well. Now, if a same-sex relationship forms at a club and one of those partners gets transferred interstate, um, again, I'm not quite sure of the workplace laws, but is that something that also needs to be examined? I don't think there's a workplace law that requires you to be transferred with your partner uh, at the moment. I've never heard of one, at least, and I was a union rep yeah. for a couple of years. Yeah. So. Yeah. I remember hearing something of somewhere with with some, uh, I'm not sure if it was an international company, but again, I am no expert. It's only just a question out there. Mm. Those smarter than me will know. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, just getting to the, well, uh, getting to the thread that we have on Bigfooty to discuss this, um, I've, I have, uh, of course, uh, raised some thoughts on the AFL not the AFL taking a risk in running the competition, but not wanting it to be a big risk, as it were. Mm-hmm. I mean, you assign five hundred thousand dollars if you've got t- eight clubs or six clubs or whatever they're going to run next year. You're talking about three, four million dollars. It's not a huge risk to take in the overall AFL budget. It just it smacks to me of a half-assed approach, Peter. 
It does. It does. And, 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 and the strange thing is, we know it won't happen. We know that there will never be another rival competition to the AFR, at least at the men's level, because it'll be too expensive to start up costs, find stadiums, etc. And, and the AFL is not an international sport. It's a very domestic sport. And so there's no big TV rights or big money to fight over to create a rival competition. Unlike, let's say, Super League, for example, um, in the rugby league territory, because the game is also played in New Zealand and England. So there's, you know, there's contracts in other countries to be won. You know, this chance to expand your market. Um, the women's competition, however, presents an interesting quirk. If the budget for it is so low, there's nothing that stops. And I was thinking about this the other day. Um, a corporate sponsor coming in just with a few loose people to, to get together to say, well, how about we set up our own little entity and if the AFL are going to throw $3 million at it, we could throw $5 million at it and create a rival competition and try and pick off the best players. Because at the moment, all the female players are free agents. There is absolutely nothing stopping them getting together as a collective, approaching some organisation to say, hey, will you sponsor us and we'll go independent. Obviously, it won't have the same marketing power. It won't have access to the MCG or Etihad Stadium. But there's nothing stopping the women to say, well, if we don't get a fair deal, if we're unhappy with what's going on here, of setting up their own little thing. Because people are interested in women's football. There's no doubt about it. We've seen the TV ratings. So, mm. you know, the, the, the AFL, the, the best situation I thought of, um, if you're a collective group of women and you wanted to find a sponsor, for example, to sponsor that competition, um, each of the major banks are tied with the sport at the moment. Commonwealth Bank's tied with cricket. We know that. Um, ANZ's got the netball because they got the ANZ Championship. NAB is associated with footy. We all know that because the NAB Challenge, NAB Draft Camp, NAB Auskick. You look at someone like Westpac, for example. Westpac, they're not tied to any sport as far as we know. You know, Westpac have also been pushing uh, uh, the female angle because they've got the, um, I have each year, the 100th Most Influential Businesswomen uh, Award. You know, if, if, the, if Westpac were looking to promote women and get an angle in in sport, they could easily come along and say, well, we'll fund this uh, women's competition as a breakaway competition, which not only would be a thorn in the side of the AFL, but then it would give them some bargaining power down the road when the NAB contract expires to go to the AFL saying, we want in. Mm. Know, and, but... it would cost them, and it would cost them, you know, $5 million to a bank that pulls in over a billion dollars profit. They go, Puh, lose change. Mm, the, the trouble is with that is that none of these guys are sponsoring women's competitions at the moment. Like they're not sponsoring uh, the women's soccer league, which has been around for yeah. some time. They're, you know, ANZ are sponsoring the netball, but no one's sponsoring like the uh, the NRL's women's sides. No one's sponsoring mm. uh, the rugby union's women's sides. I mean, these. If there, uh, if, I think if there was money to, if someone thought there was money to be made in this, it would be done already, especially yes. with all the talk that was to be done about it. And I think it's an error, and I've, I've said this in our threads, uh, that it's an error to judge the ratings that are going to come along based on uh, one game that was shown on TV last year as a curtain raiser to a proper AFL game. I think that's, um, I don't think that's going to be the benchmark broadcast uh for the future, because not all these guys, if they're going to run February to March, they're not going to be AFL game pre uh, curtain raises. At best, they're going to be NAB challenge precursors, mm. um, and that has its own. You know, the ratings for those are solely broadcast on Foxtel. 
Well, uh, let, me, let me put this to you. And, and again, uh, I should point to people listening out to the podcast. The Westpac thing is an extreme idea. I hardly ever yeah, see yeah. it happening. But it's, just, but it's just an example of you know, what yeah, could happen sure. once it's out a, there. It's a theoretical um, possibility. But, but with with the t- with the TV at the moment and the timing of the season, there's two things I worry about. One, the timing of the season. Are people really interested in football in February? I know a few people that kind of watch the NAB Challenge, but because it's preseason, it means nothing. They kind of glance and eye over footy, going, "Oh, what's going on? Oh, yeah." But no one's paying real attention to it. It's like people really have to get worked up mm. to football season or football season proper starting, and they really don't buy into it until the weather starts to get a bit colder. Once it starts to hit late March, early April, then people start to buy in to football season. Um, and, and I know that, for example, as well as like me and you know quite a few other blokes I know, we're all playing cricket at the moment. We've got our cricket finals on. To be honest, football's the furthest thing from our mind. We do our cricket thing, and once that's over in March, then you're like, oh, okay, now, now let's get into footy. Um, so... A, yes, whether you know people are ready to sink their teeth in the football with women's football starting in February. But um, the other concern was, since they want to go with eight teams, and then already the word is being seeped out there through an article in Fox Sports that I think was put online today uh, by Sarah Ollie, they're kind of saying that, oh, be prepared that the standard will be low, the standard will drop. You know, two high-quality women played, two high-quality women's teams played last year, and when that talent gets divvied up, and there's only eight teams, be prepared, be patient. The standard will drop. What's like? Well, you've got to remember we're in we're in the Twitter generation where people you want to deal with 140 characters or less. We're in a media environment where whatever makes news this morning is old news by six by six p.m. You know, people churn through news pretty quickly. People are impatient, and if like a TV show, a TV series, if they see episode one, which is game one, if they're not impressed by it, you'll A, get some that will drop off. B, some might give it another go. And if they do, and if it doesn't improve by game two, like a TV series doesn't improve by episode two, people will go, yeah, well, you know, that was fun. And they don't turn back. Mm. And you've and, and you got to remember as well that uh, when people say, oh, but look at the numbers for the Women's Big Bash League, You've got to put it into context. The Women's Big Bash League was coming off several years of the Women's National Cricket League. So the talent and the talent pool at that level was already there. And when they created the Big Bash League, they were using those current players, which were already at a certain high standard, and they sprinkled them with some imports from England and South Africa, which you know lifted the standard higher again. So it created a great TV product. Now, of course, it it wasn't the big hitting that we see in the men's game, but people could watch it and appreciate it that it was of a certain high-quality standard. So while cricket's investing and putting on a TV product where the standard's going up, and football's asking you to watch a product where the standard may drop, I don't think that's good business. No. It's, I don't think it's good to be saying, look, the standards are going to drop in advance of the competition anyway. I mean, people can decide that for themselves when they watch the first game or the second game or the third game. People are going to figure it out. Um, pretty much like they have with the NBA and the WNBA. I mean, it's it's a, it's a call that people have to make for themselves, but you've got to give them a chance. And you, you can't cut the legs out from under them before the game's even started. The, the, the most stupid thing the AFL ever done, the AFL set out a vision for 2020, which originally was smart. It was like when they set it out in 2020, it was 2014. It was six years down the road. Yes, it's a long way, and some women won't make it to 2020, and they, they might miss out. But people could say, oh, okay, 2020 is down the road. You can start putting the structures in. The girls that start now playing 13 will be 19 by that time. Yep, and you could train them and, you know, and, and mould them in a certain way as footballers. But when they moved it and they rushed it forward, 
to 2017, it was a case of, well, hang on, we haven't really had the opportunity. There wasn't a national championship last year. There won't be a national championships this year, even though there'll be a handful of state trial matches and one or two state games. We haven't had the opportunity to have a carnival where we can have the maximum amount of female footballers that are of a certain standard playing to absolutely test the talent pool to say, of really, how deep is this talent pool when it's put against each other? This 2017 deadline has killed them. If they had the national championships this year with a 2020 deadline, if the talent was there, then they could walk away from the 2016 championships and go, oh, yep, let's, let's start it now in 2017 or 2018. We're confident the talent's there. But if the talent isn't there, if they have these state trials and they have these state games, so people look at it going, actually, you know, the standard ain't that flash. Well, you know, you, you're rushing into a competition that's going to be weak for a few years, and that does nobody no favours. Mm. Uh, the, the recent example of that is um, just last week, the Greens decided to uh, jump on the bandwagon, and they were spruiking about Tasmania should have a side, because obviously Tasmania's missed out on having a men's side. They were arguing, let's bring in Tassie, let's bring in Tassie. Um, that was just pure political um, PR with absolutely no basis to it. Anyone that would have seen the fixture last year saw Queensland and Tasmania play. Queensland walloped Tasmania by over 100 points, and Tasmania scored a single solitary behind. If that is on TV, that's standard. Tell me people won't be switching off. It's it's going to have to be very uh, carefully done. Peter, just... Uh on the teams that are being assigned, I, I have some concerns about them being assigned to specific sides uh, in Victoria. As um, say, if it's uh, well, at the moment it, it could be uh, Melbourne, Footscray, uh, the Western Bulldogs rather, uh, Essendon and Carlton are the ones doing the academies this year. I have some issues where the brand recognition there might isolate them from potential support. Indeed, um, and, and I just I, I can't figure out for the life of me why they're doing in each state, excluding South Australia, which is another interesting little pickle. We'll get to um, that in a minute. Why they're, why they're doing, like in Queensland, this Brisbane Lions versus Gold Coast Suns thing and this West Coast versus Fremantle thing where really the girls have, in a sense, very little to do with those clubs. They'll be, dare I say it, it's going to be like Little League. It's like, you know, you just show up at the ground, here's your jumper for the team, go out there and run. That's, that's how much it means to them, I mean, they might be able to say, "Oh, for the girls, it's wonderful. They're pulling on, they're pulling on a West Coast jumper." But it's like, well, no, it's the same as Little League. You just showed up, they threw a jumper on you. You didn't actually go through a draft process. You were hired, you were trained for so long, you're indoctrinated into this club, you have a contract. You're actually just pulling on any old jumper. I don't know why they just didn't. At least in Victoria, when they've got this Melbourne Western Bulldogs thing to make it even more confusing. Well, they just didn't have, like they've had in years gone by, Vic Country versus Vic Metro. Mm. It is it is bizarre. I mean, I, I, um, I mean we, going back to the thread on Big Footy again, uh, obviously in, in recent weeks I've expressed some concerns about how to a, a, well, while Melbourne and Footscray have been in, and oh, sorry, I always think of the Western Bulldogs as Footscray. Footscray, it's, yeah. It's, it, it is, I've never warmed to this whole Western Bulldogs thing. But I remember being Footscray, I went out to the Western Oval, and I remember always getting tips there with vinegar that used to always go through the bag. I, I used to have pie nights there with my local footy club, so um, I lived around the corner from the Western Oval, and uh, I went to school in Footscray, so it's, it's very... I don't like this Western Bulldogs rubbish. Anyway, um, even though it's been that way for nearly 20 years now. <laughs> Look, 
Um, I have some concerns about these clubs. Well, I, I wonder if the the AFL has had to hamstring what uh, the clubs are capable of doing and offering because of the financial state of some of these clubs. The Bulldogs, the Ds, they're very reliant. Uh, Carlton will be reliant as well if uh, on on AFL largesse, on AFL grants to get these teams going. And I wonder if that's uh, what the AFL has in mind when they're assigning such a small budget. Because when you, when you say, when they say they're going to put these uh, teams out to tender, you'd be imagining that that tender process would include what teams can actually afford uh, the facilities and the teams in the first place with as little input, uh, with as little financial input from the AFL as possible. But that doesn't seem to be how it's gone. And I think that that's uh, hamstrung the competition from the outset. From what from what I've seen, and they picked Melbourne, they picked Footscray, they haven't mentioned, obviously, the two other clubs yet that will mm. be selected in Victoria. One has a feeling that maybe it's some of the weaker clubs, even though, you, as you say, they might not be able to afford it, may need support from the AFL, that they're purposely putting the women's sides there as a way of if females that are interested in the game that haven't picked a side already will follow that club, and those that are friends and family of those females will switch their allegiance or at least choose as their second preference those clubs to try and help start to boost, ever so slightly, but start to boost the membership and the attendance at those clubs. And, of course, girls, you know, young girls that are two, three, four, five years old that are starting to get interested in the game that haven't picked their side yet as a longer-term thing that they're saying... Those girls see other girls playing wearing those jumpers, so we'll get them to support those two clubs that hopefully in 10, 15 years' time when they become old enough to become members will pay off. I just wonder if the tribalism or the tribalistic nature of football in Melbourne and Adelaide and Perth is going to preclude people from supporting those teams. I mean, the the precedent that we have for this is uh, Carlton and Collingwood both having NSL clubs uh, mm back in the day and they just they could not get widespread support because it was Carlton and Collingwood you know who wants to support you know filthy magpies who, who does I mean well, do, but, do you but, Peter but, are you a magpie supporter no way right. I'd, See, no, no way I'd follow Collingwood no way no one would, wants you know, to be <laughs> like, hell would have to freeze over <laughs> that, but that's 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 the issue I, th- I, I think that might come into play a little bit um, well, that's, well that's, that's what soccer ended up doing when they started Melbourne Victory and Melbourne Heart, which is mm. now Melbourne City. Not only because of the Carlton Collingwood thing, but also maybe you had Melbourne Croatia and South Melbourne mm. Hallis, and they had to get rid of all those emotional attachments to those sides to create this generic thing, originally Melbourne Victory, that everyone could get around. And then you've got the situation in Adelaide where you've already got Port Adelaide and Adelaide having little snipes at each other and trying to recruit the best talent that they can as far before the other one gets it. And it's, it's uh, you know, Port Adelaide basically saying that the demonstration game to be played uh, before the showground, uh, the showdown next year, they can't wear Port Adelaide jumpers because they're not part of Port Adelaide, even if it's just a symbol. <laughs> it's just... Yeah. It's um, it, it, and I, can't, I can imagine the same thing happening in Perth with West Coast and Fremantle. I mean, it's... I don't understand why in Queensland and New South Wales these things aren't assigned to the the state leagues, which are run by the AFL anyway, um, where they're just they're a state side. You know, it's the Queensland, whatever's, and the New South Wales whatever's, and and they play instead of being assigned to GWS or Gold Coast or whoever. I, I don't see that being helpful to the process. Um, I don't see 
why in Western Australia it wouldn't just be a sign to, well, actually I can see why the women's uh, competitions in South Australia isn't a sign to the women's comp, to be honest, but... Um, then, then again, you've got that problem with Victoria. Where if you had two Victorian teams, that's easy. Victoria Metro, Victoria Country, you can split that up. But if you've got what they're planning, four Victorian teams, then what do you do? Yeah, well, Victoria East, Victoria West, Victoria South. Victoria. Yeah, sounds a little clumsy, but yeah, we know, we know where you're going. Melbourne or South East Melbourne. I mean, the NBL yeah, sides did it for But the problem while. is, and it comes down also to merchandise. You know, as cool as it is, if you've got... Females wearing, you know, a generic top for New South Wales. Will that move people to buy X amount of merchandise? And the thing is, if they do follow that New South Wales team, they're not actually buying a club membership, are they? I mean, it just it, it doesn't seem right that you can assign like when you're setting up a competition like this that you're not having like it, it should be either every team has it or. It, these are independent sides that are loosely... Like the TAC Cup sides, they're independent but still loosely affiliated with uh, the local sides. If you know what yeah, I mean. Yeah, but, but, but then again, with that... Uh, for example, I'm a Port Melbourne supporter and the VFL, our alignment is the Oakley Chargers. To be honest, we rarely ever give a you know rat's cahoots what's going on down at the Oakley Chargers. If they're playing a game before us, oh yeah, you might watch, but you're not really paying much attention mm. to it. You might be interested in one of them comes up to be your 23rd player, but you only really get behind and cheer them that, you know, if we make it on grand final day and they happen to be there with their TAC Cup grand final as well, then okay, we'll get behind them. But there's no real passion. There's no real emotional buy-in. And that's that, that phrase I keep always hearing from JR from WWE Wrestling. You always keep saying, Emotional investment. If you, if the people are emotionally invested in the product, you win. Well, and certainly JR used to get very invested in the product. <laughs> yeah. Um, the uh, just, I mean, we're going to wrap this up in a moment, and it's been great to have you on, Peter. But how would you sum up where we're at now, as opposed to where we were maybe a few weeks ago? There's more information out there, so and I've got a feeling that the AFL is just putting out bits and pieces and just testing the water to see uh, what they think is fair. I believe we will know more on Friday the 4th of March. It is the day of the Women in Footy Breakfast. Gillan McLaughlin is going to be there, and let's be honest, if Gil's showing up at that breakfast, he's not coming empty-handed. He's going to be dropping something, and I reckon it will probably be a confirmation of the eight teams and the tender process. The money issue is going to be interesting. I believe there's a there's a female football steering committee um, that's been chatting with the AFL Players Association but are not actually members yet of the AFL Players Association. They're trying to get all that sorted and, you know, how that works in the collective bargaining agreement. The whole money thing is going to be interesting. Some are going to like it. Some are not going to like it. Some are not going to like it and not say anything at all. They're just going to keep zip and just, you know, smile and play the first season and then assess things from there. But... Um, the, 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 the money issue is something that the women really do need to look at. Now, I, I know I've heard people saying that, oh, they can't be, you know, they should play for free or they can't be expected to, to get much in the first season. Uh, that's, at least in my opinion, a, a load of baloney. The, the women have got to find themselves a fair position, that they're fairly compensated, because not just for that first season, as, as, they've, as everyone's been talking about 2050, oh, this league sets up, you know, for 30 years down the road. It also sets up the females' negotiating position from 2017. You know, from there on in, once you lock in how much you get paid, if you think it's half of what you get, you're never going to the next year be able to go to your employer, in this case the AFL, and say, 
I would like double the money I'm getting. No employer is going to go around you and say, I'll give you double your money. They might say, I'll give you an extra 10%. I might extra give you, be generous and give you an extra 20%. So when the women negotiate their first starting price, they've got to look at something that is fair, but it's something that they can build off that gives them a little bit of muscle uh, that they can build on when they, keep, when they keep asking for pay rises in year to come. Mm. So what, what's your gut feeling? Are we going to end up with a good competition next year? My gut feel is, um, and this is without knowing how the draft's going to be and who goes where, I believe we'll end up with a one-sided competition. Um, if, if, if you look at it purely, uh, Queensland is quite strong, um, it, but then again, it, it's the cream of the crop players where they end up in this mini-draft. I mean, if you take out the likes of, example, uh, Emma Zilke and you take out uh, Taylor Harris... Um, you know, that could all of a sudden start to weaken them. But then again, if you get some ex-Queenslanders like Katie Brennan going back up there and Astor O'Connor and Tiana Ernst, that could strengthen them again. So we know that Queensland, at least with the right talent, will be right. WA will be absolute clear favourites by a long way if they're not getting split up. They'll run right in the first year. Victoria being split up into four depends on who goes where, but that's certainly going to weaken the Victorian sides. Um, New South Wales will finish bottom of the table um, it, it, depending if the Victorian sides aren't too weak, but they'll be down there. And if you look at um, South Australia, yes, they've got some good youth girls coming through. They won Pool B of their competition in the Youth Girls Championship last year. But when you look at it in a senior point of view, they're still a long way behind. We're going to have... It, it could work out that it's even down the lower end of the table because Victoria being split up into four when they take on SA and New South Wales. But, you know, if you're a betting man, uh, mortgage your house and put it on Western Australia. Yep. Well, Peter, delightful to have you on yet again to talk about things which, let's face it, we know very little about at the moment. Uh, the well, as, as, I, as I called on Girls Play Footy in an article a few weeks ago, I said the AFL's communications on this was like a drunk donkey playing an accordion. You know, they're making a noise, but the tune is incoherent. Well, like you said, hopefully we'll have a lot more information and a lot clearer picture uh, come March the 3rd uh, or March the 4th. And uh, we'll speak to you after that. It's a privilege, and, uh, well, look at it this way. We're maybe 12 months away from bounce down in the women's competition. Thank you very much, Peter. I have been speaking to Peter Holden, known on Big Footy as Crowded House, if you're looking for his posts. Um, we have a thread on Footy Industry, as well as the Women's Football Board, uh, that talks all about this information that we're bringing up to you now. And if you want further information, you can go to girlsplayfooty.com.